So today we're going to be exploring Christianity and mental health. And those are two massive subjects. Mental health in and of itself is a lifelong discipline. Christianity is a lifelong study. And there's things that come with Christianity as well. There's, there's the story of God and how he's sent his son into the world to save it. And there's also within, well, throughout history, people have weaponized faith. People have weaponized Christianity to use it to their own gain. And so now we're talking about this intersection between mental health and Christianity. And it might seem strange that we're, we're putting the two together, but I think, I think we can, as, as humans and as people, we can see that these things come together really well. And I'm coming with a certain perspective. So I am a pastor. So I have inherent biases. Like I think God is real. I think the Bible's true. I think Christ is a real person and all these things. But um, if what, whatever your faith tradition is or whatever your background is, whether you're Christian or not, um, I would just invite you to, to listen. And then I, I would I'd be open for coffee, conversation, phone call to, um, to address questions you may have. And we can just walk alongside one another and, and do this journey together. Um, a little bit about myself. I, I haven't always been a Christian. Uh, I actually come from a Chinese superstitious household. Uh, my parents, they moved to Whitehorse. Well, they moved to the Yukon um, a while ago. They moved to Canada about 50 years ago, and they started up in Dawson City. And they were there for a number of years uh, until my mom was pregnant and they needed more infrastructure and, and medical care. So they came to Whitehorse and I was born in 1987 uh, in February. And two years later, my sister was born. And so Whitehorse has been my home, my, my whole life. And uh, I, I didn't grow up with any sort of Christian faith. I actually would be more, yeah, have this Chinese superstition where we, uh, we worship this war general and we would, pay homage to um, different Chinese folklore characters. And it really didn't have any effect in your day-to-day life, but that's all I knew. I didn't know anything about Christianity or any other faith. And so I, I grew up in Whitehorse and played sports, uh, went to public school, had a great upgra- upbringing, great family. And um, I, I went to the University of Victoria out of high school and I just, I had a very deep sense of meaninglessness and a very deep sense of numbness. I couldn't explain. I wasn't depressed. I just had this thought that th- there must be more to life than this. And as I'm thinking about these really lofty thoughts at the same time, I'm doing drugs, I'm chasing women, I'm drinking and, and all these things that are clashing and, and, and nothing seemed to fill that void, nothing seemed to make any sense. And I didn't really care what I did. I really didn't have a purpose. In around 2008, my friend became a Christian. He told me about the story about Jesus. He told me the story about the Bible, how this man, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he he would take upon the sin of the world. And I'm thinking, what is sin? Like, why? What is this? I thought, Christianity was just a, a story tale and fairy tale. And I thought he was, um, that he'd lost his mind. He was actually very heavy into drugs. I thought he was just hallucinating constantly. So Christianity was just a large hallucination. 
But you tell me about the story of how God came to save the world from the sin, our rebellion against God and how it's fractured everything in life. The reason there's death and decay and loss and loss of identity and our minds aren't what they should be. Our health isn't what they should be. It's because sin has entered into the world. But the promise of Jesus Christ is that he would restore all things and he would take the sin upon himself. So I heard this message in 2008 for the very first time. I've never heard Christianity before. I didn't know anything about this faith. And as he's telling me, a part of me was compelled, but most of me was appalled. And I became a militant atheist, uh, someone who doesn't believe in any sort of deity, any sort of divinity. And I would study men like Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and and Dawkins and trying to disprove Christianity. So I'm doing this in the midst of my university career. I'm trying to disprove Christianity. I played for a varsity soccer team. I was trying to do school and do life. And I was almost obsessed with trying to disprove Christianity, save my friend from this hallucination. And as I'm doing this study and I'm reading the Bible, talking to other Christians, listening to things online, and reading the Bible for myself, I was deeply compelled by Jesus Christ and who he is. And in 2009, I gave my life to him. I surrendered everything. I, I changed my life. Christ changed my life completely. My heart of stone became a heart of flesh. My mind wanted to know God. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to tell others about Jesus. And I moved back to Whitehorse from the University of Victoria. Uh, got involved in a local church, started doing Bible studies at the Whitehorse Correctional Center with uh, with some of the men there, teaching them about Jesus, and they have strong pushback. Uh, some of these guys, they were in residential schools, and they they experienced horrific, horrific things at school, and the same with their grandparents, and, and the world is now realizing this happened to many, many, many people. And this was all done by people who worked for the church. And this was funded by the federal government. And so that legacy of residential schools and doing these Bible studies in the prison where 90% of the men are indigenous. I was hearing a lot of this, this pushback and not just pushback and not just skepticism, but a very deep, deep hatred towards Christianity. And I remember working for the Kwanlin Dunn First Nation. I was an early child care worker for uh, the program. It was called Duska, an early learning program. And uh, I'd read my Bible at lunchtime. And there was a drum workshop. A gentleman was teaching us how to make drums out of caribou hide. He'd teach us how to prepare the hide and how to uh, bend the wood and all this stuff. And during my lunch break, he came in and he was saw what I was reading and I knew he saw what I was reading and I knew he knew what I was reading. And he asked me, what are you reading? And I said, the Bible. And he said, why? Well, I said, I believe this is God's word for, for mankind, for humanity. Tells us about who God is and who we are and how we can better love God and love one another. And he said something to me that was very profound. And I thought it was a very mature perspective he said, I never hated the message of Christianity. I never hated the good news of Jesus, but I hated your messengers. 
And I think that's a lot of what has happened in modern day Christianity and historical Christianity is people who have weaponized the faith for evil gain and that taints everything. And it's still a problem in the Yukon. Yukon is one of the most secular places in all of Canada. About 50% of Yukon, Yukoners, profess no, zero religion, whether it's Buddhism, whether they're, they follow Islam or, or Christianity, none, 50% of the Yukon. In fact, in Canada, the largest growing demographic is this group called the nuns and the duns. So not nuns like N-U-N-S, rather nuns is N-O-N-E-S. The fastest growing de- demographic are the nuns and they have no religious affiliation. None. And the duns are people who are leaving the church en masse. They're leaving it wholesale. The nuns and the duns. So we're becoming more secular as a nation than ever before, and it's accelerating. And so that, that's my journey. And now I'm, I'm the pastor of Northern Collective. This is my family. Uh, Caitlin is my wife. Audrey's uh, my middle. Hazel, I have a two-year-old. And Emerald, she is six. And we, we started the Northern Collective Church with the hope to see people know the true message of Jesus Christ and, and understand there's that historical hurt. We've inherited this history of colonization in residential schools and trying to navigate those pains and those traumas and bring to light the goodness of Jesus in this massive darkness, in this massive hurt. And now it's coming to light even more with the discovery of the children at the residential schools, not just in Kamloops, but across Canada. And maybe they're going to find some in the Yukon as well. And so I have a, for, for whatever reason, I do have a particular interest in mental health. I think the North is more prone to mental health struggles. Uh, Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Yukon, we have some of the most horrendous statistics when it comes to mental health issues and things like addictions and incarceration and, and things like that. It's, it's darker and whatever reason it is, there are a lot of mental health um, struggles in the North. And you would know that as um, working for the Second Opinion Society, I'm sure. And so we, we do a few mental health training things within our church. Um, right now we're running a, a uh, biblical counseling training. It's a 12-week course um, for men and women who, who just want to not only learn more about mental health, but how to be biblical counselors, how to offer biblical truths to to people who are hurting and there's a lot of people who are hurting right now including the people who are in in the course i mean becoming a christian does not make you immune to depression and anxiety and and suicide and, and all these things but i believe that within christianity within how god has designed things there are there are ways we can navigate life um i think that we can have a great joy in the midst of great darkness and great hurt. So again, we're going to explore Christianity and mental health and mental well-being and how this will affect and how this can affect my life and your life as well. And again, I come with assumptions. 
I'm a pastor and I, I'm coming with five points of view and they are one, the creator God of the Bible is real. Not only is he real, he is all wise. He's all good. He's all knowing he's all powerful and he's everywhere present. So that's my first assumption. I'm not saying you agree with this. I'm not saying you believe this, but this is the foundation of what Christians believe and why I think it plays into mental health. So the first thing, God is real. The second is sin. Sin being the rebellion of humanity against God. Sin being that we are more interested in our own needs than God's or other people. We are inherently selfish and sin has affected every part of life sin has affected every part of life nature the cosmos animals us sin has affected everything including our mental health the fourth assumption is god wants us to have life to the full he wants us to have life to the full he doesn't just want us to suffer and struggle forever he wants us to have life to the full, but many things hinder that, including our mental health. And lastly, number five, if the first four assumptions are true, that God is real, that sin has affected every part of our life, and we can know God and ourselves from the Bible, sorry, that's number three, and God wants us to have life to the full, then five, therefore, we rely on God. We rely on God for every aspect of life if the first four are true we are relying on every aspect of life including our mental health and historically mental health hasn't been really talked about but now there's big studies including studies from places like the world health organization that say one in four people around the world will have a mental health issue they will experience a mental health issue and so when i say mental health i'm saying a condition which causes serious disorder in a person's behavior or thinking it's a condition which causes serious disorder in a person's behavior or thinking because mental health in general i think everyone has they, they're on a spectrum of mental health they're either thriving or trying to survive or not doing so well so we're somewhere on the spectrum of mental health i think realistically, not only do one in four people, I, I, think, I think everyone will go through and, and, and struggle with a mental health issue in their life. The loss of a child, getting injured, the loss of a job, food insecurity, COVID, all these things. I think, I think every Canadian, I think every Yukoner will have a mental health struggle. So this is why it's important. This is why we, we must be talking about mental health and how we can be well because i think if we want to have life to the full if we want to see our country doing well if we want to see families doing well if we want to see schools doing well a huge component of that is how healthy are we as as people mentally and so mental health issues <laughs> it hasn't been talked about historically a lot and now it is being talked about a lot but i think we should praise god for that um, but it's, but it's not new. There's a British pastor living in the 1800s. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He once said, the mind can descend 
far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over each hour. He's saying that physically, there's, there's, a, there's an end to that. There's that, to that pain. There's maybe chronic pain, but the mind, if you've ever been in a very deep depression or if you've ever experienced just a loss, Spurgeon is talking about this bottomless pit that our minds can take us to, that then we struggle to get out of bed. Some struggle to breathe, having anxiety attacks. This, this bottomless pit he's talking about, that the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways. It's this poetic way of talking about how our minds can get into very, very dark places where our bodies physically can only bear so much. And so he's a pastor, and he experienced these struggles as well. He struggled with depression, loss, grief. And even people in the Bible, people in the Bible, men and women who struggle deeply with their mental well-being. For example, for example, there, there's a man named Paul. He, he's a follower of Jesus, and he's trying to start churches um, around the known world. And before, he hated Jesus. And as he's touring around the world, he, he said this in a book called 2 Corinthians. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, he's writing a letter to the churches, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. And so this is one of the closest followers of Jesus. He's saying the work was so hard. We we're so overwhelmed that we didn't think we would live through it. We were to the point of death. So this is one of the followers of Jesus saying, I have mental breakdowns here. One of the prophets in the Old Testament, one of the people who spoke on behalf of God, his name is Jeremiah. In the book called Lamentations in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, My soul, my soul has been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I have forgotten what happiness is. Isn't that such a sad statement? I wonder how many people are going through that right now and we don't even know it. How many children at school? How many parents, how many marriages were just in such despair, where their lives are in such despair that they say, I've forgotten what happiness is, what it's like. Jesus Christ himself in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, when he's about to be crucified, he prayed this in a garden. He said he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Jesus Christ was so anguished in such sorrow, in such pain and turmoil, and that this is a true and real scientific phenomenon, that you can be in such anguish that when you sweat, your sweat droplets are actually blood. And that was the turmoil that Jesus Christ himself went through. And so we see many people, these are just a few examples, but many people in the Bible struggle with mental health problems. Yet in the Bible, God never criticizes people for suffering with depression. He never criticizes people for 
being anxious or having eating disorders or having trauma or other, other mental health struggles. Rather, instead of criticizing, God comforts them. God comforts them in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of these bottomless pits, in the midst of maybe the worst moments of their lives. God comforts them and meets their needs. In a psalm, one of the most famous famous books in all the Bible, you can, you can, you can read about the human experience through emotions in the book of Psalms. And this man named David, he wrote in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In another book, Job chapter 33, verse 28, God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. And so we see these examples of, of, of people who are so hurting. Yet God is with them in their darkness. God is with them, holding them, loving them, caring for them, healing them. And so I want to offer some, some helpful tools that I believe Christianity offers. And, and when I say that, Christianity isn't a self-help faith. It's not just another, it's not just another piece of our tool set that we, we leave on the shelf. My, my, my presentation and, and my belief is that Christianity informs all of life. But I'm going to pick out three helpful tools that I believe are helpful for people who, no matter their mental health stage, I think are helpful. And those tools are the Bible and prayer and the local church. The three helpful tools are the Bible, prayer, and the local church. And so the Bible is not a self-help book. I believe it is It is made, it is delivered, it is it is information it is a letter from god himself to his creation and so informs everything and god's word is written to us for his glory is written for his praise is written for his honor and i believe he's honored when we are living lives to the full when christians aren't cynical and fighting and divisive and antagonistic and obviously harming people. That's, that's not true to the gospel. It's not true to this God who comforts. Christians should be the most joyous people, offering comfort to the least of these in our community. If God offers help to the brokenhearted, Christians should too. They should be there on the front lines. If God is there going to the rejected, to the forgotten, to the broken, to the lost, to the least, Christians should be there, should be there too. And so that gives God glory, that gives God praise. And so when we, when we help, we don't want people to say, oh, what a, what a great church you go to, or what a great person you are. Our hope is that they would say, what a great God you serve, and that people would see him. And so in the Bible, for example, you can, there's, there's verses that can help us combat fear. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but power of love and a sound mind. 
in a book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 31, verse 8. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In a world where so many fathers are leaving their families for a whole host of reasons, God is saying in the midst of this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. I am there and I love you. I am your father. So with that, he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. And a verse to, to fight depression found within the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. Now, how many people don't know someone who's hurting in a, in a, in a terrible situation? Maybe that's, that's ourselves. The writer of Corinthians is saying, the comfort that God has shown you, you go and comfort others. That Christianity isn't a faith that you hide and that you hold and that you keep to yourself. Rather, the God of all comfort, this is all good, all wise, all knowing, amazing God has comforted you. You therefore go and comfort others who are hurting. We all know when people who are hurting. And maybe that means picking up that phone. Maybe it means setting up that, that coffee or that lunch date or sending that text or writing that letter. Maybe it means praying for them. Another Bible verse to combat things like anxiety. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, we're living in a time where it feels like the world is imploding. Political parties are fighting, that different opinions are at complete odds. The world seems out of control. Yet in Philippians, the writer Paul is saying, in the midst of this, do not be anxious. Pray, pray to God so that you have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that your peace, that your joy that the comfort that you have is not dictated by circumstance. That when the world is spinning out of control and crumbling around you, you're standing on a rock, a rock that is God. And you can have peace in that. And you can share that peace with the world. Paul is saying, we must pray. We must ask the Father for wisdom in this, which is our, our second tool is prayer. I don't know who, I don't know, I've never met anyone who hasn't prayed at some point in their life, whether they're, they're Christian or not, whether it's a little kid wanting, wanting that bike and praying, oh God, I, I pray that, that my dad will buy me that bike or, or when our sports team is losing, we pray, or when we're in a really desperate situation, we all pray. And we may not pray to 
the God of the Bible, but we're, we're, we're praying. We, we're realizing that there must be something out there and we're reaching for help. And whether we pray alone or together or as a church, we're asking others to pray for us. Prayer is a very, I think maybe the most important tool that the Christian has that we can go to the father and we can ask him directly how he can bring us joy, how he can help us, how he can guide us through our difficult circumstance or joyful circumstance that we have direct access to the creator of the universe, that the God who created the stars, the moons, the skies, the oceans, and every creature within it and created you and I and placed every hair on our head. This creator not only spoke the stars into existence, he chooses to speak to us. That's incredible that we can have prayer, that we can speak to our heavenly father. And thirdly, a tool that I would like to submit is attend a local church. Attend a local church if there is one in your community. We're finding even outside of Christian studies that people were meant to be in community. And once you remove the community aspect, mental health goes down. Suicide, abuse, violence increases. We were made for community. God has made us for community to share meals with one another to smell one another, to, in churches, hear one another singing off key. We were made for community. So attending a local church is, is an instant community. And, not, and I know churches have done a lot of damage to people. And church can increase anxiety. And Christians maybe have caused their mental health issues in the first place. But find a healthy church. Find a church that believes the Bible, that talks about Jesus Christ, and a church that really takes care of one another. That's the church you want to go to. That when we are experiencing mental illness, mental struggles, we, we can turn to our friends. Or maybe we can ask a stranger for prayer. Maybe we can ask our church to pray for us. And together we do this as a community and we're not isolated. I think the church is, is, is God's plan A in sharing his blessing with the world. And I believe the church that Jesus has, has started will be there at the end. That God will see us through. But in the meantime, there's work for churches to do. And I think the area around mental health, I don't think the churches have been doing a good job. And I would include my own church in that. And we're wanting to do better. But here's some statistics around the local church. It's from Lifeway Research. And they did this study in 2018. It says 65% of church-going family members of those with mental illness want their church to talk openly about mental illness. So 65% of people go to church. They want the church to talk about mental illness. Yet 49% of pastors say they rarely or never speak to their congregation about mental illness. So there's a disparity there. 
32% of churchgoers say a close acquaintance or family member has died by suicide. 4% of churchgoers who've lost a loved one to suicide say church leaders were aware of their loved one's struggles. Only 4% of those with this tragedy in their life, only 4% of leaders even knew this was happening or had these struggles. Only 27% of churches have a plan to assist families affected by mental health. So, so we can see right here from the raw data that, that churches, we, we need to do a better job in, in caring for the people who come and to help those people live life to the full and to help navigate their mental health. And we would come alongside people humbly, not because we've arrived, but because the God of all comfort has comforted us, so we choose to comfort others. And so there's a Scottish theologian it's from the 19th century. His name is John Duncan. He put it so beautifully where Spurgeon said, the mind can get into these bottomless pits. John Duncan said, there's no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. That Jesus Christ himself has experienced loss and pain. And he bore the sins of the entire world upon himself that he would forgive us. That he's gone before us. He sympathizes with us. Christ has gone deeper still. And this is the ultimate message of the good news. This is what Christians call the gospel. It's that there has and there is this God who's been the ultimate caregiver of our souls. He's been the ultimate caregiver of the planet. He's the king, yet he calls us friend. And he loved the hurting and the broken like no one else in history. And he calls us to do the same. In John chapter 13, verse 34, I'll leave us with this line from scripture that we are called to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. When Jesus Christ was crucified 2,000 years ago, Roman soldiers put him up there to hang, hands nailed to the cross, feet nailed to the cross, to be dehydrated, to die of excruciating pain. That's in fact where we get the word excruciating from is when people are removed from the cross, they're ex-crucified. Excruciating is that word. They are removed from the cross. He bore the pain. He bore the wrath of God, the sin that we have committed. He bore it himself to bring comfort to the broken, to forgive those who have rebelled against God, to, to adopt people into his family, that we can know him that we can know what true life is, that we can have life to the full, and that we can worship the creator God together to his praise around the world. Thank you for listening.